0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Mr. Adam Marcus, a health journalist with over 25 years of experience in science, health, and medicine. He's Editorial Director for Primary Care and Medscape. He's also the co-founder of Retraction Watch, a blog focusing on issues of research integrity and science publishing. His work as a writer has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and Nature, among other outlets. And with that, I'd like to welcome Mr. Marcus.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the program.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. I would like to begin with your work on Retraction Watch, which has garnered an impressive track record for identifying misinformation and notifying the public of retracted studies that even the scientific community may not be aware of. Uh, I want to start maybe a few years in the past, in 2014. I read an interesting blog post in which you highlight a grant awarded by the MacArthur Foundation, and there's a specific line that I found very interesting. The gap that deprives scholarly research and publishing of a crucial mechanism for self-correction. What is that gap, and why has retraction Watch been instrumental in upholding academic integrity?
1: So um, I think it might be better if I started even a little earlier than that. We uh, by the co-founder of the blog and I, Ivan Oransky, um, who is a distinguished science journalist and also a physician by training. Uh, we started the blog um, back in 2010 um, after I had at uh, the time been the editor of a publication called Anesthesiology News, which is a monthly news magazine for anesthesiologists, as the name suggests. and we had broken a case which at the time was one of the more spectacular cases of research misconduct. Um, yet uncovered, um, involving a, a young anesthesiology researcher named Scott Rubin. Um, long story short, Scott wound up going to jail for six months for healthcare care fraud. Um, he had completely fabricated results in what amounted to roughly 20 papers, and um, it was a big story in that field. Um, and Ivan, um, who at the time was editing Scientific American's online property, uh, said, hey, you know, maybe we should start a blog about retractions. Mm. So at the time, Ivan had started a blog called Embargo Watch, which is still going on and very interesting for people who are interested in in the effects of embargoes on the transmission of scientific and medical information to the public and um, to journalists in particular. Um, so we both sort of thought, well, you know, maybe we'll do a couple of posts a month or whatever, and maybe our moms will read it. (laughs) Well, it turns out we were sort of, we didn't realize we were on the cusp of the golden age of retractions. Um, But what we quickly discovered was that um, there were very few retractions, but far fewer than there should have been. And even today, we could argue far fewer than there should be. But journals were not handling them in either consistent or transparent way. And so we, we sort of, the, the, the tagline for our blog was uh, looking at retractions as a window into the scientific publishing process and science itself. Um, and we were convinced that telling the stories of retractions, forcing journals to be more transparent about why retractions were occurring, would benefit um, not only um, researchers who need to know that kind of information, if they're writing papers and want to cite them, or if they're doing meta-analyses and they want to know whether the work is worthy of inclusion, but also science journalists who could be interested in those stories from a journalistic of narrative perspective, and also the public, the taxpaying public who are funding a lot of this research after all. So uh, skipping ahead to 2014, um, we, we, are convinced, we are convinced that failure to adequately address the rationale for an editorial decision to retract a paper, to make it as transparent as possible, to create all that information in, its, in a database that uh, is devoted exclusively to retractions was doing a disservice to the, the sort of scientific constituency broadly defined as the three categories I mentioned earlier.
0: For those who may not understand the implications of your work, it may seem kind of odd that science cannot self-regulate, that the mechanisms of peer review don't necessarily eliminate misconduct or misinformation, whether deliberate or inadvertent, but it seems like there's an inability to clean up, if you will, or to address the misinformation even after it's retracted. Why is there such an inertia in the research world to eliminate false information or retracted information?
1: So I think that's a, that's a pretty broad statement. What I would say is some journals, some publishers, Um, Some editors really do care a tremendous amount about policing the literature, cleaning up the literature. Um, They hire research integrity people at the highest levels in the publishers' um, offices to to make sure they're dealing with these problems directly, quickly, transparently. Other journals um, are much less uh, aggressive, seem much more tolerant of misinformation, not just Fabricated information, but generally, you know, for lack of a of a kinder word, bullshit information, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you you probably have covered um, the 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 phenomenon of predatory publishers. Yeah. So these are journals. Just in case your audience isn't familiar, these are journals which say they provide rigorous peer review and editing, in reality provide no peer review and virtually no editing, if any, and they will publish literally anything. They often charge researchers for the privilege of publishing these studies, which, um, you know, in some, I think, for, for some unwitting scholars, uh, they might submit a, a, a reasonable manuscript, uh, a, a, you know, on a first pass to a, publish, a predatory publisher, because they think the name conveys of the journal conveys uh, some authority. But like, for example, there are predatory publishers with uh, journal titles such as the journal of science and so you could say well i've published in science and nature but really you haven't published in science comma and nature you published in science and nature right. so very misleading false advertising um so uh i guess the point is uh publishing is a huge pool to swim in and there's sharks all around but not everything's a shark right, right. so it, i don't want to lump everyone together Um, we are heartened by how much we have seen an increase in rigor when it comes to dealing with transparency, dealing with misinformation. But we also want to make sure that we're um, separating the kind of things that we often cover, which are deliberate misinformation, from the larger phenomenon of, say, irreproducible research, which you could argue is quote-unquote misinformation, but not necessarily it are usually not intentional in this information. It's just faulty science that can't be reproduced. And that's a whole, totally different question. I'm happy to talk about it, but um, we have we have written about uh, the problems with the reproducibility, but it's not the bread and butter of what we do at Retraction Watch.
0: No, certainly. And thank you for clarifying that. I think it's important to be specific in understanding the research world is very nuanced and that there are quite a few individuals and editors out there who are trying to do what's right and trying to uphold a certain journalistic integrity but i would imagine that from your perspective looking at the number of attractions increasing as the number of publications have grown or just the interest in publications and publishing has been considered now a stepping stone for an academic person to elevate their career there's certain implicit moral hazards, as I, I think you would imagine, where people want to get published. Publishers provide an outlet, and then it's almost kind of people are self-selective, where then just quantity of information may inversely correlate with the quality of information. Do you see such trends and your perspective at Retraction Watch, or is that again another broad generalization?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I I, I don't think anybody would argue that we aren't seeing. Uh, a tremendous increase in the number of published studies because we've seen a huge increase in the number of published studies, un, un, uh, unfalsifiable. Um, and at the same time, uh, a huge increase in the number of low quality uh, research papers. I, I forget the number, I think it's roughly two and a half, half, 2.3 million papers published a year. Wow. Right, so we just don't have the kind of um, peer review infrastructure to adequately address, assess all of those papers. Assuming you need two to three peer reviewers each, right? You're talking about five to, uh, you know, seven and a half million <laughs> peer reviewers. Now yeah. they could be few of the same ones, but I'm sorry, it's just math doesn't work. So, um, and there just isn't that much interesting stuff to write about. Right. Yeah. I mean, there aren't that. So a lot of it is is nonsense, salami slice papers um, where, where, you know, they had looked at a question and then they said, well, let's look at the question from a slightly different angle. OK, let's look at that slightly different angle for a slightly different angle. You know, all of a sudden you've got 10 papers from the same data set. <laughs>
0: um,
1: it goes on. Um, so but to your first first point you made, again, absolutely true. The the moral hazards, the perverse incentives in science are strong. Uh, we know. F- we know for a fact that um, you know publisher parish remains the sort of law of the land when it comes to scholarly advancement, to academic advancement, and we have seen firsthand cases of researchers who were able to leverage a um, a, fab- a falsified study into a high-powered academic job. Uh, it doesn't take too long to skim through our through our uh, blog posts to find examples of that. It happens fairly often, sometimes more spectacular than others. Um, but it, it definitely happens. That's a brass ring effect, right? Like if you publish, you know, you get one paper in science and then you, you're on your assistant uh, assistant professorship track the next month. You can see that the the incentives to to cut corners, to publish faster and not necessarily more rigorously, maybe you massage the data a little bit because you know that's going to make it sexier and you know that result's going to, you know, the editors at a high uh, impact factor journal are going to want it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, certainly. It's uh, interesting to see just how dynamic and complex that world can be. And uh, I don't think people were really as aware of how the research world works until really the pandemic kind of put everything front and center. And I wanna be mindful a little bit about how we discuss research and the retractions in the pandemic because a lot of it is still ongoing and dynamic, but I think that it would be important to discuss at a high level just how things materialized in the pandemic with research and retractions. Um, There were many drugs that rose to prominence with pre-published studies and data that was either retracted or seriously flawed. And I think uh, you don't have to search too far to see the names of these drugs, but it it was just overwhelming at a certain point. And the one thing all these studies had in common, as you alluded to, was this heightened pace of publishing or this kind of pressure to just get the information out there. What did you see in the pandemic that perhaps uh, raised alarms and gave you concern monitoring retractions for so many years before the pandemic began?
1: You know, I have complicated feelings about about this and I've thought a fair amount about it and it hasn't led me any closer to a conclusion but so let me just say we, we if anybody's interested retractionwatch.com we have a tracker of the number of retracted COVID-19 papers the number today is 215 with a bunch of uh, papers uh, subject to expression of concern we have wow. 10 more papers subject to expression of concern. So for those who don't know, an expression of concern is when a journal says, hey, we've got some issues with these results. Maybe the authors haven't provided us backup data. Maybe somebody raised a question about a figure or the data and we're not, we haven't resolved this issue. So it's not necessarily tantamount to a retraction, but very often leads to retraction or a correction. Sometimes journals do nothing. They issue an expression of concern, they leave it on. Anyway, so what we're looking at as of today, 215 papers that we've found uh, could be many more probably not double that, but um, some of them are retracted because there was misconduct involved. Some of them were retracted because the authors acknowledged problems with the data set. Um, surges for the Surgesphere papers, which you may be, your audience may be familiar with are among those. So what does that mean, right? The question is, is that a lot? Is that a little? Is it alarming? And the, the, the problem is we don't really have a good denominator Mm-hmm. for the number of COVID papers and therefore the number of COVID papers we would expect to have been retracted. But let's assume for the sake of argument that, um, oh, and by the way, some of those papers are preprints. There's yeah. a whole other set of issues and we can talk about preprints when we're done with this immediate conversation. Mm-hmm. So let's assume for the sake of argument that the number of COVID papers is 2X higher the number of COVID, retracted COVID papers, 2X higher than it should have been for another disease state, right? Or even 5X, and we have 250 retractions. Given what we've gone through as a a nation, as a world, and we're still going through, dealing with this extraordinary pandemic and the scientific challenges that were met in such a dramatic uh, and successful fashion and in a short amount of time, yes, we don't ever wanna see retractions for misconduct, But is that a reasonable price to pay for the extraordinary successes we've had in fighting this pandemic? The reality is, at least in the United States, most of the deaths that we're seeing now, almost all of them are self-inflicted wounds. Mm. People refusing to get vaccinated, people refusing to take the disease seriously, not social distancing, not wearing masks. These are all things, and you can quibble about, did the CDC adequately express itself uh, or is it communications garbled? Was Fauci, was he, you know, eliding the truth at times or, you know, um, you know, using shorthand when you should have used longhand and all these things? Well, I, you know, I, I really do think the scientific community did its best and is doing its best to save the world yeah. Uh, and to say, well, you know, there are some cracks. Well, yeah, of course, there are some cracks. Science, like everything else, is a human endeavor. We know survey data, not the best data, but survey data show that roughly one to 2% of scientists will admit to misconduct. So Mm. just like, you know, probably Two to four percent of lawyers, or maybe it's one to two percent of lawyers. And I don't know how many baseball players, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, or 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 um, or um, you know, cashiers at 7-Eleven working the night shift. You know, how often do they skim, you know, lottery ticket payment or something? Like whatever it is. It's, yeah. maybe that's a bad example. Maybe you have to log those or register, but you know, like extra gallon of gas. So <laughs> um, bottom line is scientists are people, we we shouldn't be surprised that there is misconduct. We shouldn't be surprised that. In haste, they make mistakes, and you know we obviously point. The most important thing is how we address it when we find it. We shouldn't as scientists shouldn't be defensive about about the existence of misconduct. Journals shouldn't squash information vital to uh, readers who would like to know why a paper was retracted, so that they don't cite that paper or the other or the authors' future papers if they have reason to suspect that the author is a cheat um they shouldn't suppress investigations when they they don't have to um all these things are sort of after the fact dealing with the misconduct that we know is going to exist at some point we just have to deal with it better when we find it but in terms of whether the the pace of research during COVID has exposed some great failing in science and scholarly publishing i think it's it's only highlighted for us these failings that already existed yeah. And it's the system that we're sort of stuck with that we need to work with because I don't see anybody getting rid of the system. I mean, I don't think anybody's saying we need only preprints and not, you know, peer-reviewed published literature. You can argue about open access and that's fine. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, these, we, we mentioned preprints and Preprints are here to stay. They've been here for long, way longer than the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They'll outlive the pandemic. They're probably a very useful way of transmitting information quickly, but there are issues. Like, I don't think science journalists should be turning to preprints and covering the heck out of them the way they do, um, you know, embargoed literature studies from the New England Journal and JAMA and uh, top quality journals. It's not a thing. You need to have a much higher index of suspicion, not for misconduct, but because the results haven't been verified. So it's, it's not quite a rumor, it's a little better than a rumor, but uh, it's not you know, solid gold. Understood. I'm sorry, that was a rambling answer, but I hope I touched on some of the points that you were raising.
0: No, you, you mentioned quite a few interesting points and I want to kind of correlate what you just mentioned together in a follow-up question. You talk about the preprints, but you also mentioned something that I found very interesting, uh, the lack of a proper denominator. And behavioral economists talk about denominator effects and how that can bias thinking and impact how we may think of something erroneously when we could think of it in other ways, like for example, retractions. Is it willful misconduct or is it a permissible level of error that is inherent to an overall well-intentioned process? And I think you mentioned that very nicely, but I think what would be very interesting is to get your thoughts on why we lack an appropriate denominator when we're looking at retractions? Is it that we have to separate the number of retractions with preprints, the number of retractions with all longitudinal studies, observational studies, which seem to proliferate during the pandemic, or simply because retractions when studied don't fall into these convenient categories like different clinical study designs?
1: So I think the issue with the Appropriate denominator, and I like to separate this from the COVID discussion entirely. But um, so we know how many retractions there are every year. This past year it was thirty-three hundred. Well, over the last twelve years, you've seen you know this incredible increase. Well, no, the reality is the um, few things have changed. Critical things. One, journals weren't retracting papers they should have retracted. They were allowing authors to dismiss real concerns as trivia uh, and leaving papers in journals unmarked or maybe marginally corrected. Mm. Um, They were not doing investigations of researchers in any meaningful way. In fact, this is going to be, I I apologize if if anybody listening is, I, I offend them by saying this, but that we could point to a couple of key figures who I think sort of began the modern era of journal, like sort of swashbuckling uh, journal editors who investigate research misconduct. One of them who is a friend and he's on our board uh, is a fellow named Steve Schaefer who has been responsible for uh, uncovering several of the largest misconduct cases we've yet heard of, including the the two largest, um, one is a, they're both anesthesiologists, one is a fellow named Yoshitaka Fuji, and one is a fellow named Joachim Bolt, both of whom have a, over 160 retractions of their own, you know, own studies. Um, it requires a huge amount of time and effort, and dealing with um, research integrity officers, institutions, in other countries, and fighting language and time barriers, and you know, it's a, almost a full-time job. In addition to the other clinical duties you have in being an editorial, being a journal editor, so you can understand why it's not a you know, highly desirable yeah. thing to do. Um, you don't get paid for it, um, so so you have this is a confluence of factors, as I was saying. So. Um, more people willing to spend the time to root out bad studies. Hmm. More people looking at journals now with an eye towards, and journal articles with an eye towards identifying misconduct, you know, serious flaws. This whole new field that we've seen of data sleuths really, people who, who crunch the statistics to find evidence of manipulated data. People like Elizabeth Bick, who um, have this preternatural ability to look at images and see evidence that there's um, inappropriate duplication, photoshopping, uh, other sorts of things. She's, she's incredible at it. And she finds dozens upon dozens of these things for, for on a daily basis, it seems. Um, there, uh, the, the shift from journals deciding to be more transparent themselves, publishers, while using plagiarism detection shot software, which is relatively new. You know, effective plagiarism tech. Although Google works, by the way, like any <laughs> journal says, well, we can't afford Crossref or, you know, these uh, dedicated systems. Just use Google, take a yeah. couple of paragraphs, put it into Google and see what you've come up with, and then do the investigation, right? So there are all these factors. So then we've got to this number 3,300. But is 3,300 the real number? Probably not. It's probably way low. Uh, we don't really know what the real number should be. Um, but we know that journals still look the other way when there are papers that really deserve retraction, but, you know, they get an expression of concern or the, or the author, you know, sort of talks his or her way out of a retraction. Maybe it's just a correction. Um, Many journals still just don't do the work. They don't investigate. They dismiss anonymous complaints. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can understand why anonymous complaints are highly valuable. um, Because if you are say a junior person in the lab of a senior person, who's getting the grant money, that's paying your, postdoc, uh, or your, your meager salary, you're not going to want to come forward with, you, you know, using your name to yeah. complain to the administration you or the journal, you going to want to have an anonymous complaint. It's, you know, it's the fear of course, is that this is all mudslinging and vendetta driving, but the reality is we don't see that that often, if at all. I mean, almost never, um, pub sites like, by the way, I should mention pub Pier, a fantastic site, uh, where people can anonymously, um you don't have to but you can anonymously report problems with papers that they see which has led to a lot of retractions because people tend to report things that are meaningful as opposed to nitpicky so um but anyway long way of saying we've seen a huge surge you know orders of magnitude increase in the number of retractions each year but we still don't know whether that's enough
0: Mm -hmm. but
1: we we know it's not enough actually we don't know what the the final number should be.
0: Yeah, what's interesting is in how you phrased it where what we find is still relatively low is this broader trend that, as mentioned, retractions are increasing. And I think that's probably a function of the growing number of research publications. But there's this perception that it's relatively low number of studies, that it's not a significant issue. You seem to suggest that it's probably... A, uh, un, we don't understand the full extent of it. At a certain point, then, if we we're more focused on retractions and addressing errors as they took place, do we at some point have to destigmatize the errors and retractions that take place in order to make it come to the light more?
1: Jay, uh, I think that's that is the great question of all this. So let me just first say you're absolutely right. Retractions, and we never thought that they would be, and we're even convinced more now that they're not. They don't represent the crisis in science. Mm. right? I mean, they're an interesting phenomenon. They deserve more attention, but it's not like 25% of papers deserve to be retracted. It's, we're talking about fractions of percent out of the millions that are published. But it, there should be more, and we hope there will be more, as as you suggest. We destigmatize. Retraction. One of the reasons that journals had in the past been loath to retract and scientists were because it's a black mark on your CV. But ironically, the more transparent you are about a retraction, the more that you are able to demonstrate that it was for honest error and not something else, therefore, you know, you, you should really be opening up about it, the less it appears to affect your citability uh, later on. In other words, there's appears to be, and there's a couple of studies about this, one in particular, not the best data, but there appears to be a trust dividend where if you retract openly and transparently, you um, you send a signal to your peers that the next time you publish, you will have really double-checked. You, you didn't wanna make the same mistake twice and you can bank on that next paper. Now, obviously that's not always the case, but it does suggest that um, if we can sort of come up with uh, a way to, and there are people have proposed these sorts of things, like there are different sort of notices for different, or we call different terms for different sorts of retractions, so like retraction for misconduct versus retraction for honest error, that maybe would encourage more people to retract. Uh, it's it's definitely worth exploring because we we want uh, we need transparency in the research endeavor and
0: the publishing endeavor. Certainly. And I want to ask maybe a a more clarification question. Uh, When you talk about the indexing of an author or how visible they are in a particular research field, uh, that is essentially an algorithm and the retraction is a mark on that algorithm. Can you explain to the audience how these algorithms lead to heightened visibilities for researchers, for people in academia, and what a retraction would do to those algorithms?
1: Um, yes and no. This, I'll take the second part first, which I'm not sure that a retraction does anything to your your H-index, to your citation index. Interesting. Um, you, you want to talk to a, a, a Bibliometrics person or you know citation analysis person for, to to confirm this, but I can imagine that it in in some sense could actually help. Ironically enough, um, so basically you get your 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 clout for lack of a better word mm-hmm. uh, increases the more other people cite your research, which builds up this h index. So what we have found and others have found is that many retractions continue to be cited. They exist in some zombie world where they continue to be cited sometimes like a thousand times or more after wow. retraction because people don't bother to check in, in a database like ours, retraction uh, database.org, which is the largest retraction uh, database of retractions anywhere you can find many more times pub PubMed oh, wow. or other uh, indexing services. Um, so, so you're, You could have had a retraction and have more citations, which means that your citation index would go higher. You're not debited.
0: That's interesting because you mentioned the trust dividend, which is kind of the qualitative trust that comes among your peers when you openly acknowledge a retraction. And you also talk about the algorithms not being penalized with the retraction. So that would almost, in a way, incentivize somebody to just continue to push the data, continue to move things forward should something happen, be transparent, acknowledge it, but then continue to move forward. That to me, based off of what I'm understanding, would be the best course of action for somebody in academia who wants to rise to the top of their field. Would you say that's a proper way of characterizing it, or again, do you think that this is kind of a simplification? Well, yes, it's a
1: simplification because it's not the only thing you need to do, right? I mean, yeah. the data need to be good data. You need to be doing interesting, compelling work. You need to be getting grants. You need not to piss off your dean. Yeah. You need to work well with others. So it's, it is an important component. But sure, I mean, yeah, if I were a researcher, I would want to keep publishing as much as possible, but I'd want to publish in highly reputable journals with good peer review and you know solid editing and um, not overstate my results. So um, risk retraction, and do make sure my quality control is good. But that's, I think that I'm sort of stating the obvious there, right? Like, yeah, it's just how you should function. Um, but the most important thing we think is if you do have a retraction, or do have a reason that you think your paper is retracted, deal with it quickly, deal with it transparently, don't try to hide the reason, and then move on, yeah. right? Like, it's this, it's kind of the same thing in journalism. If you make a mistake. You shouldn't hide that mistake. You you correct it and you and learn from the process and, and try not to let it happen again. And it will happen again. People make mistakes. It's how we deal with them. I think that's the important thing.
0: I'm glad you made that mentioning of journalism, because I want to transition now to big picture thinking. Uh, you talked about journalism and Retraction Watch is a blog. It's a form of journalism, but it's essentially fact-checking academic research, clinical research. Uh, I wanna get your thoughts on the growing role of health journalism in clinical medicine. What does it mean for the future of medicine and how will the two blend together, if they will at all?
1: Well, okay, so, so I've been in science and medical journalism now, as you said, for a quarter of a century. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's the same as it was back when I started, uh, the role that is which is to bring stories of science and medicine to the public in a way that doesn't sensationalize the results, um, that doesn't glorify science for the sake of glorifying science, but informs the public um, you know, about how their money is being spent, about their natural world, uh, about the important clinical findings that might affect their health, their children's health, their parents' health. Um, all that's the same, It's all that same in the COVID era. The problem, as I see it, is that the environment around us has changed. You know, it used to, I got started in journalism when the internet was getting started. Hmm. So when I was, you know, when I was in college, even we had just gotten email, the internet barely existed. We didn't certainly know about it in any meaningful way. And then all of a sudden you had this group of people who were like, I'm gonna be an internet journalist. And I was like, you're crazy. Like, no. And of course they were right. Um, the internet has really warped things because the metrics of, of um, success in a way, or of um, you know, this, at least the successful dissemination of information is how many clicks you generate. Yeah. And the, what generates a click is not necessarily the clinical significance of a study or the importance of a study in a larger sense or how well a story is written it's is this headline going to make somebody move a mouse hmm. and um is the is you know this study so wacky that it's going to make and and then we sort of devolve into this thing of like what scientists are doing now you know, like, which is i don't know that that's all that healthy I mean, unfortunately, it's the world we live in, and so you know, we're all in it. But um, I think it does a disservice at times to the public. It makes journalists like me have to um, have to balance competing interests that we didn't have to balance 25 years ago, for better or for worse. Um, so I do I do hope that we kind of move past the kind of clickbaity era that we're in now into a more measured, sort of thoughtful era. I haven't seen that happening. I think COVID, unfortunately, um, well, maybe not unfortunately. Maybe COVID in the end, when we look back, it'll say it actually was a good trial by fire for for science journalism because um, you know it sort of taught us how to think about thinking about these things, right? Yeah. Like, do we have to cover everything? Is every new variant worth covering? The minute we find out about it, you know, is every study about some potential therapy for whatever, you know, is that worth covering the minute we find out about, or do we need to take some time and like, let's see how these things play out. Let's not jump to, to alarm or, you know, sort of a panic driven
0: mode that we're in now, I think. Certainly. Do you think that health journalism and academic research can self-regulate, meaning can the relationship between the two eventually find that ideal medium where there's a certain level of prudence, a certain level of uh, authenticity in how information is being produced and then disseminated, or is there a need for a certain structure regulating how the two interact?
1: I, I don't think we need regulation, but I, and I have enormous faith in the people in this field. I mean, I, there are some. Astonishingly good reporters and writers whose work I really admire, and uh, I'm glad that they exist because I wouldn't trust myself to do as good a job as they're doing. Um, So, um, yeah, I think I I do think a happy medium is possible um, and likely. But this is all pretty new for for Mm -hmm. most of us as journalists. This is the first pandemic we've covered. I mean, some people have covered epidemics right or yeah. outbreaks ebola and things like that but this is the this is a first for a entire generation of reporters and editors and uh, journal editors and scientists even right so um you know uh, when they write books about you know the sort of the boys in the bus or the uh you know bright shining lie yeah. looking back histories of these things and we'll see what what we learned
0: uh, it will be interesting to see how we look back at these times and what perspective we draw that we're not quite seeing in the moment. I wanna um, leave with one question, and I think this is a, uh, something that you might find a particular interest. Um, what changes or modifications, if you had to kind of hold your magic wand, would you like to see in clinical research for sites like Retraction Watch to feel as if it's no longer necessary to provide as a public good?
1: I don't know that I think we should go away. Um, I mean, you 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 called us a fact checker. I would think we're more of watchdogs than fact checkers. We don't really fact check, but we do watch, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to have um, to have journalists or other sorts of folks observing these fields, whether it's law or or medicine or um, you know professional football. Uh, you, you need these outside groups uh, to keep people honest. Um, again, I don't think that clinical medicine is is sick.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think clinical medicine is extraordinarily vibrant, and um, I'm thankful as a, as a consumer of of healthcare in this country. I mean, I, I think our healthcare system is disaster, but the physicians and the and the researchers who work in it are extraordinary. Yeah. And not just in you know elsewhere in the world too, but um, I'm an American. Uh, I love our, the American health, uh, the American scientific system. It has flaws like everything else, but it's amazing. So, um, could it be better? Sure. Why not? Could have more money, yeah. right? Like we could we could prioritize clinical research in a way that we're not really doing. You know, we're 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 sort of forced in some sense to rely on industry funding uh, for things, which I think creates some some Troubling incentives uh, and you know, misplaced incentives, uh, but generally, you know, I'm quite happy with. Uh, and I think I think every every American, regardless of how you feel about the pandemic, should be thankful that there were so many really smart, dedicated people who worked really hard, from nurses and orderlies to um, the heads of of uh, pharmaceutical uh, research and development um uh units who worked tirelessly uh, to to help and and to to reverse this thing
0: and uh, and I would you know respectfully put you in that category as well I uh... <laughs> no, I can't we can't say that
1: but uh, but we're happy to tell their stories right like
0: well, well I think it's, it's interesting is that uh, if I were to characterize protraction watch and what benefit it provides it provides a natural equilibrium, if you will, where you sense in a journalistic outlet some of the mechanisms that are going on in the clinical research world that may not be immediately apparent to the public, but is critical for the public to understand. And I think by that mechanism, you guys provide helps the public and helps balance information creation, research, and data analysis with information dissemination, which is journalism. And I think that the pandemic has revealed that the two are more closely related than we would like
1: to believe. Well, Jay, I'm not going to spend all day arguing out of that position, but uh, we appreciate it. Um, uh, you're the first to mention that, but um, thank you. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's an honor, and um, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Likewise, before I let you go, sir, I want you to, for the listening audience, provide a little bit more information on where they could uh, find your work, where they can learn more about Retraction Watch. I know you mentioned the website in the URL, but if you could just repeat it for the audience at this time and also talk about the retraction database where they can identify that list of studies that have been retracted.
1: Yeah, happy to. So the, the blog is uh, retractionwatch.com, um, spelled as it sounds. And the blog and the, the database is RetractionDatabase.org. And if you're an individual, you can go on that. The um, blog is free. You go read it. You sign up. Please sign up for our, we have uh, daily and uh, weekly newsletters that you can get. Um, and uh, for the database, you can go look uh, if you're a researcher or if you're a venture capitalist or a you know, hedge fund person and you want to invest in a company uh, uh, and you know you have the name of the of the uh, chief scientific officer or something and you want to see what kind of the quality of the work they're producing you can go to our website and you can uh, search by name or by journal or by uh, keyword and not the website that with the database you can do that too on our on our blog but it's not as thorough because we don't write about every retraction that goes into the database uh, which now has upwards of 30,000 well over 30,000 entries um so um and then we make it available to um to institutions and to uh scholars who are doing sort of bulk searches um we we work out licensing with them but for for a you know a journalist or a a researcher who just has a one-off thing you can go search no problem
0: well thank you for that and mr marcus thank you for your time and appreciate the conversation
1: anytime thanks jay